In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary, we don't know the contrast organically. All right, folks, we're back. It's Monday. This is Meditations and Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. You were just listening to the industrial metal band Three Teeth out of Los Angeles, California. And you are listening to the Progressive Radio Network. That's prn.fm. And as always, you can catch us every Monday at 2 p.m. East Coast time. That's 1 p.m. where I am and 11 a.m. on the West Coast. So, there's tons of stuff that we could talk about. This last week was really interesting. We had, as I mentioned, the week prior, we had the Breaking Free from Fossil Fuels event that took place in Whiting, Indiana. Some people have told me that was the largest environmental action that's ever taken place in Whiting, maybe even the broader northwest Indiana. Hundreds of people in attendance. Uh, some people said well over a thousand. And of course there were major actions on both coasts in the Midwest. I think there was an action in the South as well and numerous actions around the world. So it was a pretty interesting series of events that break free from fossil fuels. Now we talked about some of the positives last time, and, and I mentioned some of the, I don't know if you could even call them negatives. I just think that where the, where the movement is in the United States, the environmental movement, and let's just say the broader uh, progressive left, is really, I think, lacking vision. This is the issue. Okay, so then we have to back up. So if we back up and we ask... What is the problem? So we're diagnosing the problem here. Here, you can see that there's tons of different views on the left. Okay. Or among activists. I know some people don't even like to use the term left. And maybe that's a topic that we'll bring up for a future program. I think it would be worthwhile to discuss the history of uh, the left-right distinction politically, ideologically. I think it would be useful to discuss whether or not – well, let's back up. I think it would be useful to discuss where that comes from. I also think it would be useful to discuss how that's changed over the years. You know, So, for instance, today, someone like Bernie Sanders is considered a left-wing radical by some in the media. Of course, his views are very much mainstream, so those social democratic views are very much ma- in, in line with where – mainstream Americans are coming from. Poll after poll after poll shows that the average American, the majority of whom actually, want progressive reforms. So what's changed, of course, is the political system itself and a right wing that has been allowed to become even more radical and reactionary. So as Noam Chomsky has pointed out several times 
with regard to Sanders, he is a New Deal Democrat. No, this guy isn't radical. The very notion that someone like Bernie Sanders could be considered radical shows or should show you just how warped the narrative, the, the discourse, whatever the, the term is people want to use, the conversation has become. Our political conversation is completely warped vis-a-vis -vis the mainstream media. You know, if you're talking with people at their kitchen tables, if you're talking with your neighbors, if you're talking with your friends or your family, those you love or care about, it, trying to save Social Security isn't radical. Making sure people have enough resources to put food on the table for their families and for themselves is not radical. The idea that the average American should be able to go to the doctor and the dentist, something we often leave out of the conversation, people need dental insurance and they need health insurance. The idea that it is radical to want to make these services either A, more affordable, or B, free of charge and by free of charge i guess you know someone would come back and say well nothing's ever free well no it's going to come out of our taxes it's going to come disproportionately out of the taxes if we're living under this current system disproportionately from rich people and their money and wealth that should be taxed and the financial markets that should be taxed and inheritance and all this other bullshit that people could be taxing or that the government could be taxing and could be distributing, redistributing those services and goods to people who need them. If you watch enough news, you would think that that's radical. If you listened to what the morons on MSNBC are saying, if you listen to what the bozos on CNN say, if you listen to what the lunatics at Fox News have to say, you would assume that it couldn't be done. You would assume that what Bernie's people are asking for, his supporters and so forth, and large segments of, the, of society, many portions that, you know, many of whom aren't organized currently, you would think that what they were asking for was the most radical, insane proposals known to man. Uh, but they're not, obviously. Tens of millions of people around the country have not only mobilized to fight for those things, basic health care, living wage jobs, more environmental protections. But on the right, what has been, what is now considered acceptable, someone like Trump, would have been completely unacceptable eight years ago, four years ago. 10, 20 years ago. So as many people have talked about in the past, and as I think many people who would listen to this program understand, 
the spectrum have, has shifted far to the right. But it's more than that. It is, and this is the point of today's program. It is more than simply saying, okay, the ideological political spectrum has shifted so far to the right that now someone like Bernie Sanders seems radical when in all reality in the 1950s he's just another Democrat. He's another FDR. You know, what's different, of course, is that he throws the Democratic Socialist moniker out there. So that makes people think about socialism in a, at a time when anyone who considers themselves, you know, socialist or communist or anarchist or whatever is deemed crazy by the mainstream media. Now, when's the last time a socialist regularly wrote for the New York Times? When's the last time a socialist had a TV program on MSNBC? And when was the last time a socialist had a radio program on the, on the you know, mainstream channels and so forth? I mean, there's a good example of somebody like Tom Hartman. And I like some of Tom Hartman's work. I'm not one of these people who either love you or I either hate you. I mean, there's parts of what Tom Hartman, I mean, he's obviously a very smart person. He's obviously a very educated person. He obviously cares about progressive issues. But I don't think anything Tom Hartman says is radical. Tom Hartman, to me, is on the conservative end of progressivism. And he constantly says that the, the free market system is the only system there is. And this is what we're going to get to today. And that's actually a good segue that I didn't plan. But what we're going to get to today is to is really getting people to think outside of the box. So on one hand, we've got all kinds of people who are activists and organizers, many of whom in the professional class, many of whom have been doing this their entire lives or were trained and sort of raised in this environment. Those people, on some level, have thought about alternatives to the status quo system. But they don't often write about it or think, or, you know, at least publicly speak about these things. So, again, I think I've mentioned this in previous programs, but if you were to look, and I talked to Michael Albert about this last week, and I'm going to be referencing some of his work. I'm going to read from some of what he's developed. The, economic system called participatory economics. And it's not a very rigid thing, you know. It's not like when I say he's developed this system, it isn't, okay, well, Michael Albert thinks that he has the answers. No. But he's got some ideas, and they're well thought out, and they're well articulated. And I think those are the kinds of ideas that we should be engaging with. If you were to wake up every morning and look at both the mainstream press and also the alternative media, and that could be, say, from libertarian sites, that could be all the way to right-wing reactionary, I don't even know what you would call Alex Jones, maybe like uh, white, quasi-white nationalist, quasi-libertarian site like Alex Jones's site, all the way to say, the left-wing site like Counterpunch or uh, Z Communications. And Z is better than others, as we talked about last week on this particular topic. 
articulating and thinking about alternatives. But a lot of other sites, and you'll notice, even on Z, and Michael encourages people to write about this, but a lot of people are reluctant to do so. And that is to talk about what it is we want. And not only what do we want, but what, you know, how are we going to get it? And how do we go about the process to develop what it is we want or what we think we want or what we're going to fight for? I think a lot of people take this for granted. You know, and I'm using it as a real-world example would be the break-free from fossil fuel events last week. Plenty of people there could tell you what they don't want. And to some degree, people could tell you what they wanted. Okay, but I think that the answers and the people that I spoke to, and this isn't a knock on the event, this isn't a knock on the organizers, this isn't a knock on the environmental movement. All of this could be transferred to virtually any and every political movement within the United States. So if you go to a Black Lives Matter event, you're going to find tons of people who can articulate what they don't want. And even that's going to differ, okay? Then, because what they don't want is going to differ, and their perspective of what's happening is completely different, and because there is no unified sort of critique of the system that has been offered by a movement like Black Lives Matter, or, again, this isn't to pick on them or the environmental movement, we could say the same about the anti-war movement, and we'll get into that. We could say the same about the labor movement, and we can get into that, and we will. Um, it, today and in future shows. But the issue is that, say, when you're at the break free or you're at a break free from fossil fuels event, there's this simplistic answer from folks that, well, we just want green energy. Okay. So on the surface, of course, people want green energy. Awesome. Um, but then there's other questions that we have to ask. You know, number one, what does that look like? So what, so how or what kind of lifestyle do we expect everyone on the planet to live with? That's the question. That's my question. So with the least amount of environmental impact, negative impact, and with with the most equitable and democratic decision-making processes available, how do we create a society globally that can provide shelter and clean water and food and education and a decent living to people around the globe? So that would be a question. Now, for some people, green energy is the end-all, be-all. You know, so you have green energy. Some people will say, we want the society that we have right now, okay, maybe less racism. If they're environmentalists, one would then assume that they would probably want less racism, less sexism, less homophobia, um, less discrimination, less injustice, but within the current system that we have, do we want private ownership in this future system? 
And that's the question is, you know, are we thinking about what that future system looks like? And the answer to me, unfortunately, at least as things stand right now, is that most people within the movement cannot articulate what kind of a future we are fighting for beyond vague terms or beyond just really simplistic like, well, we want an integrated movement, intergenerational movement, multiracial movement, uh, an anti-racist movement, you know, all these things. I mean, that's you can say all of that, and all of that sounds wonderful to the average progressive or leftist or person out there who just wants to live in a more decent society. All of that sounds fine. But if you ask some people, say, at an environmental protest, they're going to say, ah, it's this neoliberalism is the problem. And maybe that's not just at an environment. Well, let's guarantee that that's not just, again, at an environmental protest. This is if you were to go to any event. The Chicago Teachers Union strike is another example. So if you were to walk into the streets in Chicago when we were there three or four weeks ago, or maybe a month ago now, a month and a half, nonetheless, teachers are on the street, thousands of people are out there. Some people in that crowd simply think the problem is Rahm Emanuel, the neoliberal Democratic mayor of Chicago, and Bruce Rauner, the neoconservative sort of Tea Party billionaire governor who now runs the state of Illinois. Some people would believe that. In fact, I would argue that a good portion of people who are out there in the street would just like to see, at least in the short term, Rahm Emanuel go away and Bruce Rauner go away. Okay, so what does that bring us to? Well, that brings us to a discussion about how systems work. Because the institution of the, uh, the, the institution of the government, say, in both the state of Illinois and in the city of Chicago, those systems remain largely unchanged. So we're not talking about systemic reforms here. We're talking about individual reforms. We want to replace individual A with individual B. And the problem there, so this is, this is to really back up the movement and get people to think about Soder, how much work we need to do just to do the most basic forms of resistance. So just to replace someone like Rahm Emanuel and Bruce Rauner, which if we had a serious progressive leftist political movement in, say, Chicago or the state of Illinois, would be an easy task. Or let's just say the Midwest. So if there was a serious leftist progressive political movement in the Rust Belt, in, in largely, say, in the Great Lakes region, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, say, upstate New York and parts of Pennsylvania, let's just say that area, stretching all the way down to St. Louis, Louisville, and so forth. If we had a serious movement in this region, there is no way in hell that these Tea Party governors would continue to get elected. That's at the very base. That's, for me, at the very basic level. So if anybody thinks that anything radically different is going to change while we have right-wing reactionaries running the state houses and the governorships, you can keep theorizing all you like and you can keep resisting all you like, but it ain't going to change. I promise you that. I promise you that in 10 years, 
if at the very least we don't have Bernie Sanders-style Democrats elected to office and we're still trying to fight against right-wing reactionaries from the Tea Party or from some bastardized version of what now exists as the current Republican Party, so we're fighting against a bunch of Trumps all over the world, or I'm sorry, all over the states, and say just here, limited in the Midwest, you are out of your mind if you think we are going to have a vibrant movement. That's craziness. And I keep hearing people say like, oh, but we, you know, at some point we're going to make these people irrelevant. No, you're not. Because you, you know why? Because we continually answer to these people and the decisions that they make. I hear the goofiest shit come out of leftist's mouth all the time about how these things are just, it's just going to change one day. I've, told, I've been told that a million times. It's just going to change. If we just all keep fighting for these causes and our own little kind of silos and every once in a while we'll do coordinated actions and coordinated events. But at the end of the day, things are just going to continually progressively get better and at some point it's all just going to click. That's essentially what leftists say. That's essentially what progressives say. And, and I'm telling you that at the most limited of levels, getting someone like Rahm Emanuel out of office, getting someone like Bernie Sanders into office, the left and the progressives can't even do that. We can't even do that right now, which then, to me, says a lot about the movement or what movement there is. That's not, again, this isn't to... Uh, discourage people. This isn't to tell people that the work that they've done isn't amazing work. It's not to say that the people who are involved or who have been involved, especially with the movements I mentioned, aren't doing amazing things. Okay, so that's the last time I'll say that during this show. I say this with love. I say this with respect. And I say this in complete solidarity with people. But we have a problem when, if, when you go to an event or a series of events or, as I'm saying, for the last 10 years of speaking with activists and organizers and asking people just simply what do they think the problem is. Well, some of those people will say neoliberalism. Okay, so what, the problem started in the late 70s and the early 80s? I don't think so. Some people say capitalism. Okay. Well, there's a large portion of the left that that's the limit of their critique. So the very limit of the Marxist critique is about capitalism. That's it. Doesn't matter who we're talking about. If we're talking about John Bellamy Foster, if we're talking about Lenin, if we're talking about Che Guevara, if we're talking about Karl Marx. The very limit of that ideological critique ends with the origins of capitalism. There is no broader critique among the sort of what I call traditional left, anarchists, communists, socialists. So among the traditional left, capitalism is the end-all be-all. If we just destroy capitalism, all of our problems are going to go away. Or, let's give them a little more credit, if we destroy capitalism and replace it with a socialist government or a more equitable government or a more democratic society, 
then the majority of our problems will go away. That's their that's their view, essentially, to distill it down to its most basic form. The view of, say, more radical environmentalists would be that industrialism or industrial capitalism is the problem. So starting in the mid-19th century, early to mid-19th century, the use and the burning of fossil fuels and the industrial economy that followed is the problem. That is where we can point. We can point to that and say, here's where we've had major problems since then. You know, we've pumped this amount of carbon into the atmosphere. We've had these kind of relations with people. Uh, this is the explosion in population and so forth. I mean, people will point to that period and, and essentially make the argument that we need to go back to a pre-industrial era. Then you have people, and these people range everywhere from uh, environmental writers and, and thinkers like Derek Jensen all the way to, and that's one critique, all the way to, say, a couple of biologists from the university, or I'm sorry, from Stanford University, uh, Paul Elric, Ehrlich and Ann Ehrlich. So they wrote an article in the Proceedings of a Royal Society, Can a Collapse of Global Civilization Be Avoided? Now, this article was from February 17th, 2013. So the introduction of the article and quote environmental problems have contributed to numerous collapses of civilizations in the past now for the first time a global collapse appears likely overpopulation overconsumption by the rich and poor and poor choices of technologies are major drivers dramatic cultural change provides the main hope of averting calamity so just to go just to to summarize this, their introductory summary, or at least part of it, the main point here for people to understand, I think this is really important, is that these problems have contributed, end quote, to numerous collapses of civilizations in the past. In other words, none of this is new. For various reasons, as... Professor Ehrlich and Professor, both Professor Paul and Ann Ehrlich point out throughout the article. For various reasons, but primarily because of environmental problems, civilizations have collapsed throughout the history of humanity. The difference today, for the first time, is that we are talking about a global collapse. Okay, so right there, we have to stop a lot of our friends if we want to consider these people allies and friends. And that would be, in my thinking, various forms of progressives and also a lot of liberals, small l liberals in the United States, I'm using that as an example. Why? Well, because a nationalistic approach to these problems, to the sort of problems that we're facing in 2016. Taking a nationalistic approach to those problems isn't going to cut it when, for the first time in the history of human civilization, we are looking at a global collapse. 
That is what's on the horizon. And our problems are global in nature. So when an, inv- so when an economy collapses in Brazil, people feel it throughout the world. When an economy collapses in Greece or when there's an economic slowdown in Japan or when the housing market suffers in Australia, people around the world feel it. Now, to varying degrees, of course, the United States, which has its tentacles all over the world and in virtually every corner of the planet and every corner of the economy, when this economy sneezes, the whole world catches a cold. But it's very similar with even smaller scale economies and countries these days. And that's something we have to keep in mind because if we're hearing from people that some sort of a nationalistic approach, and that's not to say that it even has to be sort of the hyper-reactionary, hyper-xenophobic nationalism from the right, it could be Bernie Sanders' sort of nationalism. This idea that, well, if we just, you know what, we just identify as Americans and we do these amazing things as a country, it's going to set an example for the rest of the world. And, you know, now, would that be bad for us to do that? No, it wouldn't be bad at all. But that's, in my thinking, is a misunderstanding of how the world operates. And maybe he's doing that on purpose because he's not giving, say, the American people enough credit, you know, to, that they could think beyond nationalist interests but in my opinion this is one of the biggest one of our biggest challenges as a society as a movement and so forth if we can't challenge the concept of nationalism on a serious and wide scale there will be no progress or very little progress when it comes to issues like war and peace and even the climate and especially, I would argue, the climate and the economy these days. There's no way for the world to survive the next 84 years. Some people say, you know, scientists like Guy McPherson argue that humanity's basically looking at 2030 and everything changes for the worse. Okay, so let's say it's 2030. Let's say it's 2050. The, the challenges that we face in order to survive as a species require that we ditch nat- nationalism. Can't deal with the kind of problems that we're dealing with as a global society. To return to Paul and Ann Ehrlich's article, Can a Collapse of Global Civilization Be Avoided?, I'll read a couple more lines and then I'll shoot to the summary or the ending here. I, I encourage you to check it out. You know, download from the Proceedings of a Royal Society B. And if you just put in Proceedings of a Royal Society B, can a collapse of global civilization be avoided? I assure you the article will pop up. So virtually every quote, every virtually every past civilization has eventually undergone collapse. A loss of socio-political economic complexity, usually accompanied by a dramatic decline in population size. Some, such as those of Egypt and China, have recovered from collapses at various stages. Others, such as that of the Easter Island or the classic Maya, were apparently permanent. All those previous collapses were local or regional. Elsewhere, 
other societies and civilizations persisted unaffected. Sometimes, as in the Tigris and Euphrates valleys, new civilizations rode in succession. In many, if not most cases, over-exploitation of the environment was one proximate or ultimate cause. But today, for the first time, humanity's global civilization, the worldwide, increasingly interconnected, highly technological society in which we are all, to one degree or another, embedded, is threatened with collapse by an array of environmental problems. So, we can go into all of this. Um, you know, what, what, what are those causes? What, what, are the, uh, what are the array of environmental problems? We, we know many of them. We've talked about them in this program. We're, ta- we're not just talking about climate change. This is something else people who are thinking about the environment, I think, need to understand. We are, we are coming to a point ecologically on many different levels um, that is a, it's sort of on the verge of collapse. could be overfishing. It could be if we're talking about overlogging. It uh, could be species extinction and so forth. I think the folks at Deep Green Resistance do a good job of explaining what those problems are. So as we're trying to diagnose the problem, or well, wait, let me back up actually because I think Paul and Ann Ehrlich have something good to say here in the conclusion. I think this is something that can keep people thinking about what it means to not only diagnose the problem, but then what the left or progressives or activists require in order to create alternatives. So in the conclusion of this article, quote, Do we think global society can avoid a collapse in this century? The answer is yes, because modern society has shown some capacity to deal with long-term threats, at least if they are obvious or continuously brought to attention. Think of the risks of nuclear conflict. Humanity has the assets to get the job done, but the odds of avoiding collapse seem small because the risks are clearly not obvious to most people and the classic signs of impending collapse, especially diminishing returns to complexity, are everywhere. One central psychological barrier to taking dramatic action is the distribution of costs and benefits through time. The costs up front, the benefits occurring largely to unknown people in the future. But whether we or more optimistic observers are correct, our own ethical values compel us to think the benefits to those future generations are worth struggling for. To increase, at least slightly, the chances of avoiding a dissolution of today's global civilization as we know it. So that, as many people understand... I think, or I think at least increasingly people are beginning to understand this. That is what we're talking about. Like a lot of things, this is going to sound crazy to people right now, although it's sounding less and less crazy to people. Ten years ago, it sounded really crazy to people when we would tell them that at some point, if things continue in this country, in the United States, that eventually we're going to get a fascist in power. 
that we will have a fascist in power. And I, you know, again, we're, we're not too far away from that. Now, is the correct way to battle fascism with neoliberalism? No, of course not. We know all that as well. However, however, that's not the main point. The main point here is to remind people that things they heard years ago, well, look, it was the same with the war in Iraq. We were telling people when the war first started, and then especially those of us who are veterans who came back and protested the war and understood what that war meant, at least in terms of blowback, a term the conservative historian and former CIA operative Charles jo- uh, Chalmers Johnson first made famous in the second installment of his trilogy of books, the Blowback Trilogy, but the actual name of that book is Blowback. I suggest everyone read that book. But this is, this is what people expected 10 years ago. So 10, 12, 13, actually 13, 14 years ago when the debate was raging in the United States as to whether or not the United States should invade Iraq, there were people who were warning that if this happens, you can expect complete chaos 10, 15, 20 years from now. And indeed, it has been complete chaos. So this is the same thing that the, the, the most well-trained best and brightest amongst us now today in 2016 they are telling us that the planet simply cannot handle this anymore that there will be a complete and total collapse of civilization as we know it maybe in my lifetime some as i said like guy mcpherson would argue likely in my lifetime or at least in the generations that follow in their lifetime Unless we make drastic changes. So then that requires the left to have a shared, a, a shared set of values. And those values, because if you don't, so let's we use an example like solidarity or diversity. So on the surface, people would think, oh, I don't know what solidarity means. And solidarity is this and that and whatever. You know, people might, might think it may mean. Someone else, it could mean something totally different. So even if you start a movement with the idea that, oh, well, I'm anti-racist and I, I'm in solidarity and I value solidarity and I value equity and I value anti-racism and I value diversity. What exactly that, what exactly solidarity, diversity, equity, racism mean to different people is going to be drastically different. So see, this is part of the problem. And this is actually just having a conversation with a friend and fellow activist and organizer here in Northwest Indiana, about this very issue, a, a, a lack of shared values. You know, so if we don't have shared values, or let's say we have on the surface, or people assume that we have shared values, like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, Vince, he, he values anti-racism. Well, what anti-racism or what equality or what justice means to me could be... V- radically different and i'm sure is radically different from what the you know the person standing next to me at an event or the my neighbor or my parents or my friends or comrades so forth could be radically different 
And some would argue that's okay. We're going to have radically different ideas. But if, if we get, so let's say we're talking about something like a Black Lives Matter uh, political movement. So some people within Black Lives Matter would say, we want no more police at all. That's what we're fighting for. Okay, so what's the strategy to get that? And what are the values upon which that's, that view is take, you know, takes? So that's the vision. So people might have a vision of we want no police in society. But let's stop right there. See, the problem is for some people within the movement, that's okay. But for other people within the movement, they're going to say, well, I might agree with some of the values that that's based on. However, I don't agree with the vision because I actually think that that we're going to need police or we're going to need some kind of a security force or some kind of a policing body, whatever you want to call it. If you want call it something different, I don't care. Um, but we are going to need a, a security apparatus, in my opinion to deal with any number of people in society. Now, other people might argue, well, if we drastically change society, maybe there won't be rapists around. Maybe there won't be people who are beating their wives. Maybe there won't be violent outbursts. I'm assuming there will be much less. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that people aren't shooting each other in gated communities. Now, does that mean everybody should live in a gated community? No, of course not. I'm just using a simple example here. So if we lived in a more equitable society, if we lived in a society where people had more goods and services, of course I don't think there would be as much violence. But I would still argue, and I'm not the only one, there's going to be people within society who would still argue that they want some kind of a security force, that they don't believe we can live in a society without police. And maybe when I say police, again, maybe that's the wrong term. And maybe we should use something different so that way when people think of policing or what I'm talking about, they don't automatically have such a negative view in their minds. Okay. So when we're talking about values, those values should lead to a vision. So the values and the principles upon which individuals and movements will base their worldviews will lead to a vision. And that vision, of course, is going to need some kind of a strategy to achieve the goals of what the, that vision is or those visionary goals. And in order to have a sort of unified, effective strategy, there's going to be tactics that then lead into this. Now, some people would say, I, I would consider this more of a political program. This is something else I would be interested to talk to Michael about the next time I interview him. But I would be interested to talk to him and to others about the difference between, say, a political program or trying to build a movement based on the things I'm mentioning here, developing values and those values leading to a vision, that vision requiring a strategy, and that strategy requiring tactics. I think activists are intimidated by this. And this is challenging, and for many reasons. One of the reasons, as I mentioned earlier in the show, is that if you go to all the websites, I mean, it could be The Intercept, could be The Nation, could be any, name any site 
you can imagine. What you're going to find, and this includes radio programs and TV programs and documentaries and so forth. So imagine all of the documentaries you've seen, okay? All of the documentaries you've seen on any number of issues. And tell me, out of all of those documentaries you've watched, how many of those documentaries discuss a problem or a series of problems and how many of those documentaries talk about potential responses to those problems and I'm intentionally not using the word solutions because I think we need to get out of this idea that we're going to solve things instead of constantly growing, constantly evolving, keeping a sort of omnipresent sense of flexibility that there's going to continue to be struggles and there's going to continue uh, to be problems and so forth that will need uh, not only temporary solutions but also long-term alternatives. And then those alternatives will then again turn into the problem. You know, someone like Robert Wright talks about this, the uh, anthropologist, Canadian anthropologist who wrote the book A Short History of Progress. We're going to have him on the program too. So I think it's really important for us to go back over what it means. You know, what is progress? Why has it played such a central role in the history of civilization? And what does it mean for people when they constantly say, well, we need to progress as a society. You know, we need to progress. Because what he's going to talk about are progress traps. And to put simply ideas or things that at one time looked like a solution or looked like we have solved a problem, then become the problem. His example of indigenous peoples in particular parts of the world learning how to hunt and driving massive amounts of bison off the side of cliffs. So indigenous people learned that it was much easier instead of going out in small groups or instead of going out as individuals, of course, and then going out in small groups or even as communities that to get several communities together or to get almost virtually the entire tribe together and to drive large, well, entire herds of bison off the side of cliffs, killing them on impact, that eventually what that did was to make certain species extinct. So they drove certain species to extinction, hence leading to large-scale death, suffering, starvation on behalf of people within these particular tribes and in these particular locales. We could argue the same thing here with what we... So for energy would be another example, I think, in the United States. So people don't want to be cold in the wintertime. So what do we do? Well, we come up with a solution. What's the solution? Well, the solution is to have heat. So how are we going to do that? Well, we'll do that with natural gas and coal, of course, using the technology at the time to do so. This is great. What a great idea. Now, finding out many, many decades later that by doing so, we've dis virtually destroyed the environment and we're changing our atmosphere and our environment drastically. 
by using those fossil fuels that at one time looked like a solution for us. Look like, well, our problems are over. Look at this. We can be cool and comfortable in the summertime, and we can be warm and toasty in the wintertime on a mass scale. And without doing much hard work, we don't have to go chop wood and fill up our fireplaces. And there's not enough wood to chop up anyway to fill up all of our fireplaces. So we'll just walk over to our thermostat, put it on 67 or 68 degrees Fahrenheit, and call it a day. And now, you know, so then, of course, that progress, what we, what we think is progress, then turns into a trap. That's not just an environmental trap that we're finding out now, of course, with coal and natural gas and so forth, that we have to stop using those products, literally stop using them immediately is what the, the world's climate scientists are telling us. But it creates other problems, creates economic problems. Because now, even though it's much less work to walk over to your thermostat and to put it on 67 or 68 degrees in the wintertime or in the summer, It takes much less work, sure, but you can't do it on your own. It's not like having a fireplace. So if you decide, well, you know, this month I can't really afford to have electric heat or to have gas heat, so I think I'll just use my fireplace. Well, if you don't have a fireplace, if you don't have wood or access to wood to fill that fireplace, or let's say your health isn't in the best condition and you can't do those kinds of tasks, well, then you require a gas heater or a petrol heater, etc. So that's how a lot, I mean, I think that just give people something to think about. Now, I can already see we've only got about 10 minutes left. So I've gotten to about one-fourth of the things I'd like to talk about today, probably because I'm bouncing all over the place, but nonetheless... I want to get Albert back on the program so we can talk about values, vision, unified strategy, tactics, and so forth. But something else that I wanted to mention today, and I'll leave with this, you know, about, yeah, like I said, nine, ten minutes left, is to is a discussion or a brief introduction to the concept of ideology. So what is ideology? Where does it come from? What does it do? Let's answer a few of those questions because I talk to a lot of people and it's really interesting. Here in the United States, ideology is not as important as it is in Europe amongst the movements that I've worked with and the people I've spoken and the people I continue to speak to. And it's the same really, I would argue, and we'll ask Kim Sipes this question when he comes on the program as well. We talk about the Philippines. I, I, I mean, I would argue as well the same in parts of Asia. And I would without question argue that there's much less of an emphasis on ideology put here in the United States on political movements as opposed to, say, somewhere like Latin America. Okay, so this from Terrence Ball and Richard Dagger, Ideals and Ideology, the concept of ideology, quote, That ideologies and ideological conflict have persisted throughout modern history should come as no surprise. Ideologies are born of crisis and feed on conflict. People need help to comprehend and cope with turbulent times and confusing circumstances. And ideologies provide this help. 
An ideology does this by performing four important and perhaps indispensable functions for those who describe to it, subscribe to it. Excuse me. First, it explains political phenomena that would otherwise remain mysterious or puzzling. Why are there wars and rumors of war? Why are there conflicts between nations, between classes, and between races? What causes depressions? The answer that one gives to these and to so many other questions depends on, to some degree, on one's own ideology. A Marxian sociologist and socialist will answer one way, a fascist another, and a feminist yet another. Second, an ideology provides its adherence with criteria and standards of evaluation, of deciding what is right and wrong, good and bad. Are class differences and vast disparities of wealth a good thing or a bad thing? Is interracial harmony possible, and if so, is it desirable? Is censorship permissible, and if so, under what conditions? Again, the answers one gives will depend on which ideology one accepts. Third, an ideology orientates its adherents, giving them a sense of who they are and where they belong, a social and cultural compass with which to define and affirm their individual and collective identities. Fascists, for example, will typically think of themselves as members of a superior nation or a superior race. Communists will see themselves as people who defend the working class against capitalist oppression and exploitation. Animal liberationists will, define them, will identify themselves as defenders of animals that are unable to protect themselves against human abuse and exploitation. Fourth and finally, an ideology supplies its adherence with a rudimentary political program. This program provides an answer to the question posed by the Russian revolutionary Lenin, among many others, who've asked, what is to be done? And no less important, who is to do it? With what means? A Marxist-Leninist, for instance, will answer these questions as follows. The working class must be emancipated from the capitalist exploitation by means of a revolution led by a vanguard party. Fascists, feminists, greens, liberals, conservatives, and others will, of course, propose other and very different programs of political action. So to summarize, a political ideology is more or less syst systematic set of ideas that performs four functions for those who hold it. The explanatory, the evaluative, the orientative, and the programmatic functions. By performing these functions, an ideology serves as a guide and a compass through the thicket of political life. There are, as we shall see and as we shall talk about on this program, many different political ideologies in the modern world. What of democracy? Is that an ideology? In our own view, democracy is not an ideology, but an ideal, and so forth. So what this gets to is really what we need to talk about here as a movement and what we've been encouraging people to talk about throughout the left. And as I mentioned, I think it's a little more pronounced here in the United States, this lack of talking about alternatives, this lack of talking about the future. But I think 
the Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek said it best, and I'm paraphrasing, but when he simply said, look, in today's era, in 2016, people can dream of all sorts of things. And we ask and we almost demand and insist that people dream. We demand that people dream about their future. What kind of career would you want? There's people dreaming about going to space. There's people dreaming about living on Mars. There's people dreaming of being different genders. There's people uh, dreaming of wanting to live in multi-million dollar mansions and in different kinds of lives. There's people dreaming of dragons. There's people dreaming of robots taking over the planet. There's futurists who constantly dream, artists who constantly dream. But we have very few people in today's world who are articulating visions for the future, what those visions could be. And for some reason, we can imagine living on Mars easier than we can imagine the end of capitalism. For some reason, we can imagine people at will changing their gender or race, both biologically and sociologically, but we can't imagine an end to sexism or racism. We can't imagine what a different economy would look like. We can't imagine what a different governmental structure would look like. Can't imagine what different cultures would look like different modes of production, and a different relationship to the environment. These are the sorts of things that we should be dreaming of, and these are the sorts of things that as activists and organizers we should constantly be articulating. We should not be known as a bunch of people who are constantly telling others how bad it is and how bad it's going to get. We should constantly be reminding people that, yes, there are problems, but that we have to come up with sort of unified ideas for what the future could look like and those have to be based on a shared set of values in order to develop those alternative visions so i look forward to doing that with you in the future you are listening to meditations and molotovs i am your host vincent emanueli thanks for joining us this week you're listening to the progressive radio net network join us next monday 2 p.m new york time we'll talk to you then we don't know the contrast organically.